Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. My generation, because our family was large, we were four boys, we often traveled by car. Those were the days you could travel anywhere, everyone piled in, and that's how you made a pilgrimage from one town to the next. Many of you who've done that, whether you're from my generation, a generation before, perhaps you still have that today. You find yourself being bored with the road after a few hours and you engage in some fun travel games. One of the most common and classic games that our family excelled in was the geography game. When you mentioned a city, a place, a state, and you had to continue in the cycle that you were going with the last letter of the previous person for the first person. So if you said Alaska, you would then say Arizona. Are you all familiar with this game? We played it in our car all the time, and our family was quite cutthroat about it. Who could knock the other person out? And I always remember that we would come up with these random places, because we traveled so often by car, we would kind of gather all these random places and cities that were bona fide places, but others didn't know about. And occasionally we would get a place and some letter we were trying to knock someone out, so we would say, like, Katmandu, which ends in a U. And in ending it in a U, I remember me and my brothers, we'd always find Utopia. And my parents would always say in unison every time, there is no Utopia. Even though there are some cities named Utopia, by the way. And that was a refrain that didn't only happen in the car game, but it happened all the time in our house. As we suffered, looking for perfection anywhere and everywhere. We heard that refrain as we were driving on every major interstate throughout this country. There is no utopia. And while there are cities throughout this great country, throughout this world, and we can go to all types of places, there is no place that is utopia. There might be a city with that name, but it isn't utopian in its view. This idea of utopia exists for just a brief snapshot, a second, in the history of the world. You read about it in the sixth parsha. It's a place called the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve go there. And when they're there, there is nothing bad. Everything is good there. You don't die there. Everyone can eat all they want and you don't gain weight. There's no pain in childbirth. You have everything you can imagine and the garden of Eden. And as soon as Adam and Eve come into the world, God tells you strictly, whatever you do, have anything you want, but don't eat from that tree called the tree of knowledge. Because when you do, you will surely die. Eve is tempted by the snake to eat it. She does. And they are banished from the garden of Eden. She along with Adam. After that moment, we have mortality on all human beings. After that moment, we're told that all women will endure pain during childbirth. We're told that they will know of struggles and challenges in their life, and that everything will no longer be utopian, but what we know as reality. The rabbis go into great debate and conversation as to why we would have this lesson so early in the Torah. Why would we talk about the banishment right from the get-go, as opposed to developing some of the character? of Adam and Eve? I think the answer is very telling and quite brilliant. 
He answer tells us that we should know from the history of human beings that there is nothing utopian. There is nothing perfect. And that while all of us are in constant struggle, searching for what seems like utopia, what seems like the perfect place where we are pain-free, where we look our best, where there are no challenges in front of us, such place doesn't exist. And for some reason or another, we're still looking for that place. In my job as rabbi and pastor, one of the things that I do in meeting with people is talk about what they're working on individually. Where are their challenges? And the way it works in life is most times people come to you to talk to a clergy person when they're feeling challenged, not when they're feeling fantastic on top of the world. And they come and they talk to me about the challenges in their work. A lot of times they talk about the challenges in their marriage. A lot of times they talk about the challenges with themselves. And what we find so often, and I say we because it's not only myself, it's other clergy as well, is that so many of the people that I spend this time with over a cup of coffee in my office, perhaps a cafe, are looking for a level of perfection that simply doesn't exist. It might exist in fairy tales, it might exist in the Torah for a snapshot in the Garden of Eden, but in our life, it doesn't exist. People who come to me and say, Rabbi, if my wife would just learn to cook and have more moments of intimacy with me, and just when I come home, run and give me a hug and forget about the kids for a minute, then our lives would be perfect and better. And the spouse of the same relationship will say to me, if only my husband would walk in and say, how was your day? Above my shoulders for a few minutes and say, let's catch up on the couch while rubbing my feet and say, I appreciate all that you did to keep us going. Life would be so perfect. There's two problems with that. Besides the naivete of this idea that those three things are the recipe to perfection, there's a quest for utopia. It's a quest for this idea that if these little missing links were put into our lives, then there would be nothing wrong. Then there would be nothing from one spouse to the other spouse that would get on the other's nerves or make them feel that they're unappreciated or make them feel that it's not working. As opposed to saying, have you seen it from the other person's eyes? Have you understood and appreciated where they're coming from? Can you have some empathy and compassion? Instead, we're all striving for something utopian. How many of us have caught a moment at work, daydreaming, perhaps in front of our computer screen, about the perfect boss, or the perfect job, or the perfect day at our job, or even the perfect salary? But how often we don't think about all the things that come with those pieces of quote-unquote perfection, the challenges that come with it, the responsibilities, the ideals. And so often when people walk into that embrace, of what they dreamt about, they realize that it isn't so perfect. It isn't so utopian. But if ever there was a model, I think, that we as a people, all of us in this room, fall into the trap of on a regular basis of dreaming about utopia, it has to do with Middle East peace. Now, I spent a lot of my life dealing with the Arab-Israeli conflict dealing with this notion of landscape, with the idea of living with the Palestinians, and frankly, as a whole, all of us have a backward view of what Middle East peace looks like. 
we have this idea, and I say we, I would argue most of the Jewish people and most of the Palestinians. We have this idea that there's going to be some light that shines through that makes us all breathe as current air. And in that air, we're going to understand the plight of the other. And in doing that, we will live happily ever after. That we will one day sit next to the Palestinians and we'll drink tea together as we understand and appreciate their holiday of Ramadan and they bring us apples and honey for Rosh Hashanah. That we will walk hand in hand and celebrate as we mow their lawn on vacation and they pick up our mail when we're away. It's naive. It's silly. It's utopian. And the problem is, is that is the model that we have carved out each and every time we think about the Middle East peace. We think about the peace that happened with Egypt and Israel and how beautiful and sweet it was. And Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin shook hands in front of Jimmy Carter and finally there was peace between Israelis and Arabs. Sure, it was people in the picture. But how many people died or were wounded in terrorist attacks when we seated the Sinai? How many people are still living in that danger? When I was living in Israel in the 90s, I remember going into Sinai to spend a few days, right before Passover. People would come to go and vacation there and make our own exodus. It was very dangerous. And that was during a very peaceful time. In between two intifadas. Sure, there was peace. And the peace existed on paper. It existed in a snapshot that we saw between Anwar Saddam and Malcolm Bacon and Jimmy Carter. It existed in financial aid that came from the United States to both of these countries. But it doesn't exist the way that we all sit together drinking tea and celebrating each other's differences and commonalities. It's a utopian view that we all fall in the trap of each and every day. And frankly, I think it's a significant obstacle as to why we haven't achieved the peace that we're after. My teacher, my friend, Paul Becker, who's the lead negotiator on behalf of the government of Israel in negotiating peace with the Palestinians, told me that he looked up 25 treaties over the last 150 years that existed between different countries that were warring or in trouble and wanted to look at their treaties of peace. What he noticed about every single one of them is they were nothing more than legal required documents. This is your border. That's my border. This is the percentage of aid that will come to your country from this country. This is the percentage of aid that comes from the other country. Now, in any one of these 25 treaties, they list a special understanding and appreciating of different cultures, the commonalities that they might share, the celebrations of certain places, or how religious environments can be tolerated and understood. Rather, they were all factual and ideal. And what we dream about is so utopian that it's unfair of us to put that on our shoulders. Sit down with any of the common speaking Palestinians, non-radicalized, and they will tell you. This was our land. The Jewish people stole it from us in 1947. And in stealing it from us, they need to understand what they put our people through. Ask any of the Israelis, non-radicalized, common people, folk, what they think that happened in 1947. They'll say, we offered a plan that was an honest partition between the two countries. They rejected it. They absorbed it. It was ratified by the United Nations. We followed our rules. Both of them seem to have some level of understanding between the two that are radically different and not congruent. 
And we seem to idealize, as with the other side, of what peace will look like between us. What that's going to be. It's pretty utopian. And the first thing we learn in the Torah is, it doesn't exist. There is no utopia. And what we all have to calibrate to, whether we're dealing with relationships with our spouse, our kids, our work, or we're talking at the water cooler, reading in the newspaper about Middle East peace, is that we're not going to sit and drink tea together, at least not in the near future. Sure, there might be a handful of relationships between Israelis and Palestinians that are like that, right? And it's lovely to dream about. But it's not reality. Reality is going to be based on something that will be on paper, on borders, on swaps, on percentage of income, and foreign aid. That's the reality. It can be based on, based on a common sense of tolerance and understanding, not on embrace and acceptance. It's a reminder to us, while we might be distant from whatever treaty will be put together, that in our own lives, as we search each and every day for that level of perfection, that the Torah teaches us in its very first lesson with humanity, that perfection doesn't exist. I'll close with this beautiful story from the Midrash. A story of Adam and Eve nearing the end of their days. They're about to die. And God calls out to them at the first creation. And says, Adam, Eve, you've had a great life. You're my first creation of human beings. I love you. You worked hard. Come on back. Come on back into the garden of Eden. I'm going to let you in. Come and spend your last days of life there. Adam looked at Eve and Eve looked at Adam. They shared a look that spoke volumes, the way that a husband and wife say sometimes, without uttering a word. They understood all the challenges and tribulations that they had together, all the hills and the valleys, the good and the bad, that their life and medicine from the Garden of Eden was anything but utopia. And they looked at each other and realized that they couldn't appreciate each other without that. They couldn't appreciate the imperfections without those moments of celebration. And they looked at each other and said, God, no thank you. We can't go back to that level of utopia. It won't be fair for us or for anyone else. It won't allow us to appreciate all that we have. That's the reminder we should have in our lives. That's the gift that we should be given. Be reminded that there is no utopia. There is no level of perfection. And what we should be striving for is how to make each day work. The broken pieces we have, the pieces that are whole, and how we make them all come together to have some level of synthesis and organization to make our meaning even stronger. So that's the love. Continue our 